For great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts, the TNT Shop is now open at tntradio.live. This is the Freeman Report with James Freeman on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to the Freeman Report. My name is James Freeman. I'm a former member of the European Parliament and this is my weekday show where I break down the big issues of our time in our fight for freedom, liberty and justice. It is Friday the 8th of December 2023 and it's the end of another week and what a week it's been. Going by what I've seen online, it is clear that the temperature within the truth movement surrounding the COVID injections has been turned up a few notches. We've had the leaked data from New Zealand, Andrew Bridgen's event in Parliament, more evidence if we needed any that the COVID inquiry in the UK is just a big whitewashing exercise, and several stories appearing in the UK mainstream press questioning what the jabs are actually doing. Now, will this rise in temperature of feelings within our community, though, make a difference? In my opinion, yes, it will, because the more noise we make, the more people that slowly wake up. Remember what I've said about the legacy media, that breaking the truth on mainstream news platforms will never happen. Well, Tucker Carlson has now also said the same thing, that reporting the truth, even part of the truth, that the vaccines are not safe will be an admission of guilt that simply will not happen. The consequences for the political establishment, the medical establishment, the media establishment and the globalists are just too great, meaning it will never be allowed to happen. So we shouldn't measure the success of all the work being done to reveal the truth by whether it is reported on the telebots. For me, each time the heat get turned up, turned up, um, it is like a wave that moves across the world. It animates everyone in our community, which creates visible noise. Particularly when the likes of Tucker Carlson, Russell Brand and others with true global reach create hours of content asking very real and valid questions. Like, it's all very well governments saying the vaccines are safe and effective, but if this is the case, why are they ignoring excess deaths? Why is that? Why don't governments just release record level data to independent experts after anonymizing it? It is our data after all. I think a majority of the public just assume that this is what is already happening because there's no good reason for it not to happen, is there? I can't think of one good reason why governments wouldn't release the data. Yes, it would require resources to do, but that's hardly a good reason not to release the data. There are hundreds of published papers from world-leading experts showing how the injections are not doing what we were told they would do, like the fact that the mRNA travels around the body for months and months. Nobody actually knows yet how long for. Um, I've heard six months being put on it, but actually these studies say it could be longer than that. And what this mRNA does is it replicates itself in the tissue around the body, which is what causes myocarditis, because the body's immune system attacks the tissues and muscle producing the spike protein. They told us the mRNA stays in the arm, but that simply isn't true. 
Then we have all of the papers showing how the jabs messed around with women's menstrual cycles, irregular periods and bleeding experienced by many, many women. Pfizer has been forced to admit that this is the case. And now we see birth rates falling off a cliff in many countries. Is this due to the injections or is it being caused by instability in our societies? I don't know the answer to that question for sure. But given one of the main accusations against the ejections is that it's a global program to reduce the world's population. Given that accusation that is grounded in discussions from organizations like the World Economic Forum and billionaires who have pushed the jabs like Bill Gates, I don't think it's a silly question to ask. Anonymized record level data would answer this question. All you'd need to do is look at pregnancy rates for the jabbed versus unjabbed women. Effectiveness of the jabs against dying from COVID could also be assessed. And this is the thing, ladies and gentlemen, they don't want answers to these questions to be in the public domain. Governments continue to say safe and effective when they are anything but. And I don't think most of the public even realize still that this was a global mass experiment of an untested technology. My sister, for example, had no idea that the COVID injections weren't just a regular vaccine. So much for informed consent. And so given this lack of transparency by governments, we should be very worried about the global political situation surrounding the World Health Organization, which is the main topic of today's show. What the WHO is attempting with the backing of the US, UK and others is a power grab that would give it unprecedented powers over member states in the event that it, not member states, but it, decided to call a pandemic or health emergency. No longer will the organization be an advisory body if all of these changes go through. No, it will have powers to mandate government policy, which is a truly frightening prospect. In terms of funding, just 20% of the WHO's budget comes from regular fixed payments from member states. Most of the rest comes from a host of so-called NGOs and other organizations you know, foundations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Gavi, um, and also corporations. Many of these organizations have direct links with the pharmaceutical industry, and many, in, like Gates, stand to benefit directly from certain pharmaceutical products. That cannot be right. An unelected body funded by those who stand to benefit from certain products, being able to mandate those products and government policy like lockdowns. So to discuss all of this, I'll be joined by James Roguski in a moment, who is kindly got out of bed in the middle of the night and it literally is the middle of the night um it's just past three o'clock in the morning there he's going to join us live from california to tell us the latest news on the who after james i'll be joined by my old colleague at the office for national statistics jamie jenkins who will share official data from around the world that answers one of the biggest questions coming out of the uk COVID inquiry which is would more lives have been saved if we'd locked down earlier? 
ridiculous that question seems to be the main thing coming out when the answer is already out there in official data around the world. Um, Jamie will also discuss the inquiry in general and the mounting evidence that it is just a very expensive white elephant. If you want to get in touch, as always, email me at jamesfreeman at tntradio.live. If you want to join in the conversation, also get yourself over to tntradio.live and click on the chat icon. My name is James Freeman, and this is the Freeman Report for TNT Radio. Talk that matters. For once, we just need to do what's best for this damn country and not what's best for the world. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Good morning, Jemsy. How are you doing this morning? Well, it's Friday, James. It is Friday. So, you know, everybody's got the spring in their step on a Friday, no matter where you are in the world, the weekend looms. And uh, it's like Dean Mackin was saying earlier on, on TNT here, even even if you're working on a weekend, it always feels different. There's a nice, relaxed kind of feel. So, yeah, looking forward to it very much. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. I'm going to, um, I've had a busy few weekends the last few weekends. Um, and of course, my wife left me for, for a whole week by myself with the kids. So um, tomorrow, I'm hopefully going to get back to my norm, my preferred Saturday, which is lying in bed or on the sofa most of the day, watching a bit of TV and just switching off from all of this horrible stuff going on in the world and just um, chilling out, basically. I think that's really important. It's very easy. I mean, we're today's news talk. We cover stories from all over the world. You're just talking there about the World Health Organization. And it is really, really important information and we need to get it out. But I think you can lose perspective, can't you, if you become consumed by these things too much and um, they can start to sort of define how you live your everyday life, you know, your interactions with your nearest and dearest and just being unable to relax maybe and enjoy the moment because you're thinking about what if this happens or what if that happens or look at something I just read. It is important information. Knowledge is power. Power, don't get me wrong but it's equally important to have that balance and that downtime because then it enables you to see things i think a little bit more clearly so yeah 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 absolutely. and particularly surrounding the jabs which has obviously been the focus a big focus um of all the conversations in sort of the truth movement globally over the last couple of weeks because out of all the things that they're doing and have done i think that's the thing that frightens me the most that um you know that governments might be able to mandate this in the future and and whether you know that's vaccines or medicines or or whatever it is quite a truly frightening prospect so it does it does get me riled up to be honest right Gemma what um what story have you got for us this um, um this Friday well, it's interesting you're talking there about, um, you know, donors, the um, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and um, pharmaceutical donors to these big intergovernmental bodies who want to try and rule our lives still. Um, and it's the power of money, isn't it? Money talks. And there's a report out by Bloomberg, the financial and business um, publication and institution. And it's talking about the richest families in the world because uh, it's easy to look at kind of like uh, so-called philanthropic foundations, which they're anything but, and think that they wield the power. But this this report out today is about the 10 richest families, the 10 richest dynasties in the world. And it does show the growing power of the Middle Eastern families. Uh, for the first time, uh, there's a, a family from the Middle East, the Al Nihans, who are at the top of the tree, the richest family in the world with a combined fortune of 305 billion. Um, and there's two other Middle Eastern families, the Al Saud families, who I think always make the rich list and the Althani families who are coming in at number five and number seven, respectively. Um, so it does show that the petro fortunes, this is what Bloomberg is saying with this report, they're saying it's reshaping uh, the global kind of 
business field like never before. The financial firepower of the Middle Eastern families, uh, you know, has such power and influence now. And the way that they keep their wealth and they grow their wealth, it's very interesting that Bloomberg is saying they they do it generationally. They don't look at quarterly figures. They look at generational figures. They look at, you know, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren. They project down the line. And interestingly, they say that these families, they play the very long game when it comes to protecting and increasing their wealth. It's obviously very successful. And we can see the growing influence of these families in the Middle East by the fact that Qatar held the last Men's World Cup. Uh, Saudi Arabia now want to host the next one. We've got COP28 in the United Arab Emirates. They're, they're becoming increasing global players. Their power and influence cannot be stopped. So with that money and power and influence, if you look at what thing people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have done, you know, how are they? Let's have a look at how they're really using that money, shall we? I think that probably does warrant further investigation because there's so much money there. So, you know, billions and billions these families are worth. Interestingly, the other people that make the list are the Mars family, the confectionery family, you know, the Mars bar, and Hermes, who make the luxury fashion brands and the bags. Um, and, and Koch Industries from America as well, which is oil. So where do they put their money? Well, who do they influence? Are they yeah. just kind of all hanging out, having a nice time? You know, those are the questions I think that need to be asked looking at this report out today. It is ridiculous, isn't it? I think there's a statistic and I forget the exact um, what the numbers are, but it goes along something along the lines of a million seconds, I think is a few days, something like that. Um, it is a matter of days. And then, you know, a billion seconds. What is it? A 30 years? I think it is something like that kind of gives you a perspective of the, the, the kind of money that um, families and individuals are accumulating when you're talking about just even one billion that's a huge 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 amount of money but when you talk about what is it 305 billion dollars um it is ridiculous i don't know how we solve this obviously we've had you know for centuries we've had kings and queens and dynasty families ruling over i mean even if you go back to I guess, you know, even Egypt, where you had um, very, very rich dynasties there ruling over the rest of us. I don't know what the answer is, but to me, it just seems ridiculous that we've got individuals that have got so much money. You know, um, what is it? I think the the, the family in charge of the Walmart um, chain, um, I, I forget what the statistic is, but you can actually measure it in tens of percent in terms of their share of the wealth um, in the U.S., which is just ridiculous that one family has got so much power. Um, like I said, I don't know what the answer is because I think, you know, um, just capping how much wealth you can accumulate, difficult to see how that would work because there's always ways around these things, aren't there? And particularly in a global um, community where different countries have got different rules and everything else. Um, and, and also then you have to argue, you know, where are you going to cap it? Um, you know, is that, is that going to de-incentivize de certain people that are doing good in the world and are actually creating stuff? So I don't know the answer, what the answer to, but it is ridiculous when you think that um, families themselves um, have got more wealth than a lot of countries in the world. Absolutely ridiculous. That's exactly right. And it was the Walmart family, the Walton family were historically tree they were the richest family in the world it's just now that they've been overtaken by the al nahin family um from the middle east and from abu dhabi um and and there are 
two others within the top 10 who come from Middle Eastern countries. So the, this, the balance of power is shifting. You know, to say that the richest family in the world is an American family wouldn't raise that many eyebrows, but to have three now from the Middle East, and this is what Bloomberg is saying, this firepower, this economic juggernaut coming out of the Middle East, with money comes power and influence. And some of those Middle Eastern countries, Saudi Arabia, for example, they're not renowned for their human rights, a kind of... Uh, um, record, shall we say, they're very strict countries, you know, so their, their attitude to kind of power and how they wield it is very different from the West. And yet they're, they've got increasing economic power now. Yeah, the other um, part of the headline actually for this story, I'm just looking at it now, is that the the, the wealth of global dynasties has actually soared for, by 43% in the last year. So while the rest of us are struggling, um, with cost of living, you know, in high inflation across the West, in America, in Europe and other countries beyond that, people are struggling just to live a normal life. And you've got these people that have already got just absolutely disgusting levels of wealth. And actually, they've increased that by 43 percent um, over the last year alone. Absolutely ridiculous, well, isn't it, Gemma? It was ever thus. Right, Gemma. Um, thank you very much. I hope you have a great weekend. Like I said, I'm going to kick back this weekend. I hope you manage to um, get some rest and recuperation so that we can kick off another week um, here on TNT Radio on Monday. Right, to the rest of you, I can already see James in the green room waiting to come on. Um, so I won't stay any longer because it is 20 past three in the morning where James is. So bless him. He's got out of bed. Um but to talk about a very, very important subject. So thank you, James, for that. Um, he'll be with us just in a moment. So stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT Radio. TNT Radio's Chris Smith. Despite being used to protect travellers from terrorists, hijackers or violent drunks or those who were drugged out as they board, and this has been going on since 1961, they won't be around this Thanksgiving. None of them. Air marshals were always meant to be invisible. Well, you can guarantee that this Thanksgiving. Ironically, the Biden administration has been hijacking air marshals for all kinds of other duties, leaving the passengers they were meant to guard and protect completely helpless. Air marshals have been lumbered with assisting the chaos on the southern border. They might be called air marshals, but an unknown number are now seconded to work on the ground. Maybe they're ground marshals now, marshalling illegal immigrants on the border and doing the job supposedly meant for the United States Customs and Border Protection. Where are they? Chris Smith on TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular, we can build that. 
Today's News Talk Radio. I do a lot of streaming radio. I do a lot of free streaming. TNTradio.live. Right. Well, I'm delighted um, to be welcoming James Ruskowski to the the first time, actually, on the Freeman Report. I have interviewed James before, uh, but that was before I was on TNT Radio. And like I said, I'm going to say it again because he does deserve a huge um, um, thank you from everybody um, who's listening today for getting up at three o'clock in the morning. Hello, James. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'd like to comment on what you said about your Saturday um, for the last two years, it really does seem like the gods have been putting on a theatrical production just for my entertainment. I seem to be the only person watching this soap opera called As the WHO Turns. And they've actually been meeting this week, and it's been disappointing because most of their meetings, as usual, have been in secret. But as we speak right now, I'm getting ready to um, watch the latest um edition, the latest show, um, they're supposed to be meeting this afternoon to uh, talk about the um, international health regulations. And it's at this meeting that they said two months ago that whatever they are talking about today is what they plan to submit um, come January, which is the deadline for them to, to do so. So, uh, you know, if you want some interesting uh, entertainment, um, watch the, the WHO. <laughs> And James, um, I think most people watching and listening will know who you are, but I wonder if you wouldn't mind um, not so much introducing yourself, but just introduce what what it is that you do, because um, a lot of the, you do a lot of the painstaking work, don't you? So that the rest of us know what's going on. Well, you know, it's kind of what I just said. Uh, I have taken it upon myself because I stumbled into a document um, from the Biden administration almost two years ago now. And, you know, was fascinated by these negotiations because these negotiations are not what almost everybody thinks they are. And so I've been reading their boring documents, um, which have little snippets of things that are fascinating and, you know, frightening and watching whatever videos they do put out to try to, you know, make it so that people can comprehend uh, a lot of words and a lot of deception, a lot of um misinformation coming from them but the biggest issue is quite frankly a lot of secrecy and you know that's what really really needs to stop yeah okay um before we get um into the sort of latest updates on the who let's just start uh, very very briefly kind of summarize now um what's going on so ted ross i've seen a video from him recently saying that this isn't a power grab from the who that they will not have any powers um over sovereign governments um very very briefly james tell us what your view is and your opinion being an expert you read all of these papers what you think this is actually about he's right and that may shock a lot of people but you have to understand the concept of how they manipulate the language okay now what has been going on with the international health regulations which is one piece of this puzzle is that all the way back in 1969 what they did is they set up a structure which is really like a global leadership council it's called the world health assembly that meets to discuss all of the details with the international health regulations and our heads of state still maintain the authority to reject whatever the world health assembly adopts 
the problem that people are misrepresenting is that we have lost control of our own leaders. And I don't like to call them leaders. Our heads of state are the ones who appoint delegates to go to the WHO. They do their bidding while they're there. Each of the heads of state has the authority under Article 61 of the regulations to reject the amendments, but they have stopped listening to we the people or uh, whatever you want to call the legislative body in any given nation, the um, parliament or Congress or the Senate or so forth. The problem is that our democratic representatives are being ignored. We the people are being ignored. And individually, our own nations have turned into health dictatorships. That's a really important distinction there, James, that you're making, um, because what you're saying is, you know, we have the ability as as countries to reject this. But actually, because our um, governments have been captured, that's no secret. You know, the WEF, Klaus Schwab has sat on stage saying that if I call the French government or this government um, over here, that 50 percent of that cabinet of, of that government will be WEF people. So we know that our governments are being captured. So what you're saying is it's, it, it's our own governments and people there that are giving away this power. But I guess ultimately it is still a power grab. It's just, I guess, a, a technical thing there in terms of, um, you know, whether it's actually the WHO is taking that sovereignty from us or whether it's our own governments giving it away um right james um so tell us tell us the latest what 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 have you discovered recently well the the latest um i really do need to break it down into three separate categories because what happens is and and this is one of the reasons why tedros was right because in the alternative media People are taking information from these three different categories and cross-pollinating them and mixing them all up and getting it confused. So technically, misinformation is going out. Um, the most interesting aspect of it is one where many people may be aware that December 1st was a deadline for something that is so fascinating. Um, please, if you could, just give me a couple of minutes to to get this yeah, whole yeah, yeah, story yeah. Go, out go for because it, it's yeah. astonishing. 18 months ago or so, the Biden administration had um, failed to get the nations to accept the amendments that he had put forth. This is what I first originally found. He, he submitted it in January of 2022. And what he was trying to do, amongst many other things with the amendments, was to shorten the time period that the next round of amendments would um, go into force and have time to be considered by each nation. Now, currently, even though that deadline has passed, it hasn't gone into legally binding effect, currently and, and for the last 18 years, when amendments come uh, are adopted by the World Health Assembly, there's an 18-month period that every head of state could just write a letter to the WHO and say, well, you know, thank you very much, but for our nation, we reject them. And then six months after that, and in that six month period, the nations would have time to write laws and allocate money. And then it would go into legally binding effect two years after it was originally adopted. They sought to shorten that 
to six months and six months, six months to consider or reject it. And boom, it would immediately have to be in legally binding effect. That's a significantly different, you know, shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. Well, he failed to get the six months, but you have to understand why he wanted to do that. If you go fast forward to the end of May 2024, and then you go six months beyond that, you're still in December of 2024. His administration would still be in office. He would have complete control over ramming through the next batch of amendments. Well, back in May, um, the nation said, no, we're not going for that. And what he then did, along with the UK and the EU and a number of other nations, I believe illegitimately submitted a new batch of amendments on May 24th, 2022 is when they were submitted. Now, there's a rule, Article 55, that governs the international health regulations, and it says that any amendments have to be submitted four months in advance. Well, he did that with the original submission, but not with the second one. Well, they just looked the other way. And, and here's the mind-bending thing, okay? They have rules as to how their voting is supposed to proceed. And they pretended to have had a vote on that illegitimate document. They published on May 28th, a five-page document that was certified by their legal counsel as a, a, you know, a uh, um, certified authentic text. And down at the bottom of that document, they said, well, this is from the eighth plenary session. Well, if you watch the eighth plenary session, they never bothered to get around to actually vote on that document. Now, right, James, I'm just going to stop. I'm good. James, I'm just going to stop you there because we've got to take a very, very short break um, for the for the headlines. Uh, but stay right there. So basically, they've faked this vote. There's more to talk about this, and we'll do it straight after this short break. So stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT Radio. The news right here. TNT Radio News here with a look at your TNT headlines. Infowars host Alex Jones has suggested the deep state will try assassinating Donald Trump to stop him from becoming president again. The White House has taken aim at Republicans for prioritising America's national security over Washington's support for Ukraine. The US military's grounded its entire fleet of Osprey aircraft following last week's fatal crash off the coast of Japan. And Ukraine's declared a power emergency as winter sets in and demand for heating soars. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Right, James, I think you were, used the word astonishing or something similar. That sounds pretty astonishing to me. So the WHO has essentially um, faked a vote. Tell us more about that, James. Um, it, it, that's exactly what it is. Um, and so for 18 months, I've been trying to get the news out. And finally, um, on November 28th, 
um, a group of 12 members of the European Parliament wrote a letter to Tedros, essentially giving him until high noon on November 30th to present evidence that they actually did conduct a proper vote. Well, you know, silence is consent, so no information was forthcoming. Uh, and so their letter stated in the last line that absent any evidence from the WHO, they would consider those amendments to be null and void. And that's how I'm going forward with, you know, my view of what they did. It was a wonderful theatrical production. And that's why I was encouraging you to watch the WHO's, you know, um, program, because that's the kind of thing that they do. But people don't notice. It's such a crazy plot twist. You wouldn't believe it. But that's how they operate. And so the amendments that were adopted last year um, in a pretend fashion, here is where for the people in Australia and the UK, it gets even more interesting. Um, I was asked by someone in Australia to you know, research what they should have been doing with those purported amendments when everyone was still believing that they were you know, legitimate. And in Australia, the power structure runs from the king to the governor general, to the prime minister and the cabinet. And they have in the executive branch of their government, 100% of the decision-making authority with international agreements. It says very clearly in their law that the parliament is then given the responsibility to enact legislation to implement what the executive branch decides. And people get very confused about that language because when it's spoken, they say, well, you know, parliament will act on this, but only to implement it, not to decide whether or not it shall be implemented. Now that led me to dig into what was going on in the UK because they had reports from years past that said, oh, if only our system could be improved and make it more like the UK's system. So it's obviously different. Well, what happened in Australia is back in May and June, 55,000 Australians signed a petition saying, we want the parliament to talk about this. Well, it was ignored because there's, there's nothing for parliament to talk about. They don't have any authority to change any decision made by the prime minister and the foreign minister. But in the UK, it's different. Now, in your foreign um, commonwealth and development office, back when those that charade of pretending to adopt these amendments happened, Liz Truss was the foreign minister. She was in office until September of 2022, became prime minister for a nanosecond, um, James uh, cleverly took over that office, and a little less than a month ago, um, he left office and David Cameron is now in that position. Well, conveniently, that office during these musical chairs with their um, you know, foreign minister changes, neglected to present those amendments to the UK parliament for their consideration they're obligated to submit any international agreements or changes to parliament, not for their approval, but for their consideration and possible rejection. Well, 116,000 um, citizens in the UK signed a petition from April to October that um, um, 
Tess Laurie put forth that said, we want to have a parliamentary debate about this. Well, interestingly enough, they finally got around to scheduling the debate for the 18th of December, the last half hour of the meeting of parliament just before Christmas. Well, you kind of missed the December 1st deadline by almost three weeks. What good is that going to do other than to spew more propaganda? They have failed in their duty to consider a change in international law. Now, this is not surprising because I challenge everyone in the world to go into the records for your nation, go back to 1969 and 2005 and realize that the way the international health regulations were created was not by asking nations to approve them. It's by approving them in their secret little cabal where they have their meeting with their appointed bureaucrats and assuming that you accept it unless your head of state writes a letter rejecting it. This is where everybody gets their wires crossed. You were not asked and your parliament was not asked to approve the IHR in 1969. You were not asked in 2005, and nor were you in 2022. And they're not going to ask you next time either. James, do you think it's worth um, sending an FOI to um, David Cameron's um, office to ask those two questions, to ask, you know, was this presented um, to Parliament and has it has the deadline passed? Um, I wonder if it's worth doing that. Well, my understanding is that there's supposed to be a meeting on the 12th with a representative from that office. Um, I, I am not 100% sure, but people in the UK have told me that since he's actually um, a lord, it, it's confusing as to whether or not he will be the person um, to be there to answer the questions. But uh, my understanding is that any member of parliament could pose a question to that office at any time. And, you know, I would also encourage people, in addition to doing a freedom of information request, contact your um, member of parliament and ask them to ask on your behalf why they were not given their lawfully required opportunity to weigh in on these um, proposed amendments. Now, I know we only have a short period of time to touch on the other two things, but go ahead. I think you have a, a question. Yeah, I was actually going to say, James, that I think we're nearly out of time. Um, we've got um, a couple of minutes left. If there's something else that you want to get out. Well, the most important thing is this same negotiating with the um, amendments. Back in October, the working group for the next round of amendments very clearly said that they were not going to meet their deadline. They're obligated to submit the next round of amendments before January 27th, which is four months in advance of the May assembly. And they know that they're not reaching agreement. They came out and talked about the rules. They know the rules. The rules are clear. You have to submit a final version four months in advance. And they're not going to do that. So they then spent about an hour laying out their conspiracy, their plot, to just roll right past that deadline. They've already scheduled meetings for February and April. They are going to break their own rules in public view. And you know they're, they've told everyone that that's what they're going to do. 
Today, this afternoon, if you do a search for WGIHR, Working Group for the International Health Regulations, you should be able to find you know, the details for their meeting. They are purportedly going to um, live stream and record and have available their meeting this evening. We will see if they allow we, the you know, little people of the world, to see the status of these negotiations because we don't know what's in these documents. They gave us a version a year ago, but we haven't seen anything since. Fantastic, James. A brilliant update there. And I think, you know, as always, um, it's not just a bit of information that you've given us. You've kind of told us what we should be doing about this. And so I'd encourage every, everybody who's watching, um, please do write for you, to your MP and ask them why um, they haven't been given the opportunity to look at these amendments and what the UK government is basically um, signing away to the WHO. James, listen, thank you so much um, for getting out of bed in the middle of the <laughs> night and also um, for all of the work you're doing. It's very painstaking work, as we've already discussed. Thank you for everything you're doing. And um, I'd love to get you back on soon because, of course, this is a rolling story. Um, and I think next <laughs> year is going to be a very, very important year. So thank you very much, James Rogeski, thank you, James. everybody. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. You too. Um, right, everybody else, stay away, stay put, um, because after this short break, I'll have Jamie Jenkins, my old colleague from the Office for National Statistics. We're going to be debunking what is going on in the COVID inquiry in the UK, which is turning out to be a very expensive white elephant. Stay tuned with me, James Freeman on TNT Radio. I didn't ask to be thrown in the streets with nowhere to go, but I did ask for help and Covenant House was there for me. One in 10 young adults will experience a form of homelessness this year. For these kids who didn't ask to be put in this unthinkable situation, Covenant House is there, providing hot meals, a safe place to sleep, medical care, and love. They just really genuinely just wanted to help me succeed, and I'm succeeding. To learn more, go to safeplacetosleep.org today. The Freeman Report on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Right. Right. Okay. Welcome back. Um, welcome back to the Freeman Report, Jamie Jenkins. Hello, Jamie. Good morning, James. How are you doing? Yeah. Well. Uh, well. No. It is still morning, isn't it? We've got another fifteen minutes. Um, yeah. I'm doing okay. I'm pleased that it is Friday, and in about fifteen minutes, I'm literally going to collapse in a heap and probably spend the afternoon napping by the fire. But anyway, anyway, um, let's not digress. Um, Jamie, um, I won't get you to introduce yourself. I think everybody knows who you are. You are a former head of health analysis at the Office for Natural Statistics. Um, you've been on the show many times before. Um, so tell us what you've got for us, because the COVID inquiry, I think the biggest question coming out of it is the question of, should we have locked down earlier? Would that have saved more lives? Um, what's your thoughts on this? And what does the data show, Jamie? Yeah, well, we might need an inquiry about the COVID inquiry just to understand what's going on there, because it's absolute shambles, to be honest with you, James. Just to break down what the COVID inquiry is aiming to do, it's got a number of different modules. So the first module looked at kind of the preparedness for the pandemic. So how prepared we'll be going into the pandemic. Now, that was concluded a, a while back, and now they're going into the decision making of the pandemic. But if you look at what the barrister, Hugo Keith, a lot of the questions that are coming from him and then what some of the witness statements are coming from, the likes of uh, Professor Chris Whitty and um, Patrick Valance, who are 
of the chief medical officer and chief scientific officer during the pandemic. A lot of them and politicians themselves are saying, oh, maybe we should have locked down three weeks earlier. Now, the thing for me, what's been missing in terms of the, the schedule of these modules, James, is so module one, yeah, how prepared were we? Okay, that's a reasonable thing to look at. But then module two, going straight into kind of the decision making. The question you need to answer before you go into there is, where did the UK go right or where did the UK go wrong? And the only way you can do things like that is compare the United Kingdom to other countries. So if we take excess deaths, for example, and we look over the broader period from 2020 to, say, the end of 2022, we can see countries like Sweden, when you look at a Western Europe, much, much lower than the UK, didn't have lockdowns. So and then that would question, you know, the question should be around, what did Sweden do? What did the UK do? Did we get things right? Did we get things wrong? And if you look at one of the questions that Boris Johnson, or the, the line of question yesterday, James, that Boris Johnson was asked was all around this eat out to help out policy. So in August 2020, the government paid for people to go out half price for their meals to kind of boost hospitality. And then COVID cases rose, uh, you know, not shortly, not long afterwards, kind of shortly afterwards. And a lot of the question is kind of blaming this policy on it. But I'll let you come back in on a, a couple of thoughts on this in a second, James, is that so in France, we also saw similar rising cases around the same time, similar in Portugal. I haven't looked at every country in Western Europe, but they're quite close. They didn't have an ETO to help out. But it's like a gotcha moment with the barrister to say, well, this policy clearly is, is must have led to this, uh, Boris Johnson and, and other witnesses. Well, actually, if you look at the data, look at comparable countries, maybe that policy did nothing at all and the virus would have done what it says. So for me, unless you're going to look at what other countries are doing to identify what differences happen in the United Kingdom, it's an absolute shambles. It is shambles, isn't it? Because, you know, we've got this data, official statistics of what happened in other countries. We know the policies um, they enacted there. Um, so for them all to sit in a little room in the UK talking to politicians, it's all very inward looking isn't it and it's not looking at things unbiasedly um, and and looking and zooming out and looking at the big picture now on that question of lockdowns i know you've done quite a bit of analysis on that jamie what do you think about this question of you know if we locked down earlier um would it have saved more lives well it's, it's a very difficult question to actually answer that one because but i think that trying to come up with a suggestion that if we had locked down three weeks earlier, for example, it would have saved lives. So the first bit is it's difficult to say if it would or it wouldn't. So it's going to be hard for them to conclude that. And the reason I say this is that we can look at Google mobility data and, and we can track from there because actually a lot of people have got mobile phones and Google devices. So you can, you know, Google will know where your phone is. That's pretty much what, what goes on. So they can see mobility data. So if we take the United Kingdom, around March time, and then we saw one of the longest kind of reductions in mobility across the whole of Western Europe for, for a long, prolonged period of time. Uh, and then you look at Sweden and, and then look at excess deaths. So we had about 30% excess deaths probably for the first wave of the pandemic in England and Wales, if you look at the ONS data. It was about 20% in Sweden and they didn't have a lockdown, so it was slightly lower. But then if you take two years on, some of the countries that prepare, you know, did really well in the first wave, so they didn't have much excess. They've seen excesses in the second wave and the third wave. So the so the question really is that we need to try and dig into a little bit more. It's okay if we'd locked down a bit earlier, maybe there would have been fewer deaths in the first wave, but then these vulnerable people possibly would have died 
in the second and the third way because ultimately you couldn't stop this virus as countries like china so yeah and of course you know there's the question as well which i think there's more and more evidence coming out on this is that a large proportion of people who died in those first couple of waves in the uk were actually killed by um, a very very substantial change in policy for pandemics you know the government has had this pandemic um preparedness policy that's been in place for years and years but they just threw that out the window um and they acted very very differently and so a lot of people um were killed by putting on being put on ventilators and uh, we know the the huge quantities of midazolam and morphine that we used in the hospitals and in the care homes lots of people died from that so from my point of view the whole question itself is an absolute nonsense um the other thing jamie and uh, before we move on to other questions is you know as you and me um showed last year of course there is a lag in the data um of, of deaths but what we actually saw once the data came through was quite often that the number of deaths were actually dropping just as they announced the lockdowns so you know the government would have us believe that the lockdowns were the things which you know caused the waves to peak and then fall but actually in a lot of cases um deaths were already falling as they called the lockdowns um jamie um what do you think of the inquiry more generally the whole thing well, uh, just to pick up on the last point you said there before I answer that one, James, I think one of the things you've got to remember as well is we went into this living with COVID phase. You know, the government themselves with their backbenches in the UK, countries around the world, everybody got lockdown fatigue. So you couldn't just continue to go with it. And we have continued to see like waves of COVID since 2021, 2022, 2023. And they all follow a very similar pattern to what actually happened when we had the lockdowns, that the cases rose for about four to six weeks. And then without any interventions in this later period, they start rising, uh, sorry, following again. So the question is, would that have been the same there? But more broadly than the COVID inquiry, I think obviously this isn't a criminal kind of prosecution that's going on. But what you've got to remember when you're trying to find out the facts and establish you know, what went on, if you take a criminal kind of case, you'd normally have a prosecution and a defence with two barristers trying to put opposing views but then a jury or a judge to kind of conclude, well, based on all of the evidence and the views that we've viewed in this courtroom, what do we think actually happened? But what's going on in the COVID inquiry is pretty much being driven by one of the, you know, Hugo Keith, who's the key barrister there. A lot of his own personal, you know, it's the question that he's asking, very leading questions at times, trying to put, kind of to come to this conclusion that should have been locking down earlier. So for me, with the COVID inquiry, are we looking at the broader questions? Nobody's looking at what happened in other countries. So if the if the barrister's pretty much focused in his line of questioning on certain things, it's only going to lead to one conclusion, isn't it? Yeah, they're asking all of the wrong questions. Well, they're asking the right questions um, for a, a big cover-up, which is what I believe it is. Now, um, Jamie, excess deaths. Um, I know you've done a lot of work in, on this in the past. Obviously, you're tracking mainly what's going on in the UK, but you have looked at other countries. Um, what's the latest on that in terms of when you last looked at the data? Are we still seeing excess deaths in the UK? Well, we are still seeing them. It's much, much lower this year than what we've seen when you start doing all the age adjustments. And I'll be doing some work on this in the coming weeks to kind of conclude where we got to in 2023. But I think you raise a good point with excess deaths to link it back to the COVID inquiry. There was a big 
kind of argument, I suppose, between Boris Johnson and the barrister this week on excess deaths, because the barrister was saying that in, in the United Kingdom, it was the second worst in Western Europe. Boris saying, well, we were halfway down the list. And that, again, comes back to the timing of when you look at the excess deaths, because if you look at a narrow time period, perhaps say up to the end of 2021, excess deaths in England and Wales were much higher than some parts of Western Europe. But then they've seen excess deaths coming a, bit, a, little, a little bit later on. And if you only look at Western Europe as well, James, what kind of masks that? If you look at Eastern Europe, they had a terrible 2021. So Boris, I think, was right that we're probably in the middle when it comes to overall excess deaths. But the barrister's saying we're up towards the top. And if the barrister can't get the facts right, that's a big problem. Yeah. Now, the other thing about excess deaths, which I don't think a lot of people really realise, is excess deaths, um, obviously, they're, they're published weekly in a lot of these countries. But if you look at it annually and you look at 2020, um, actually, we didn't actually see there wasn't, you know, given that this was a so-called deadly pandemic, when you actually look at the the the, de- the rates of death for the UK, I mean, unless somebody, well, even if even if you were told that that happened there, um, you can't see it in the data. And yet, in 2022, after the vaccines were introduced um, and parts of 2021, we can actually see those excess deaths on an annual basis. Is that something that, because that, that's that's quite shocking um, for me, um, that a big question that's not being um, asked there, because the evidence shows that actually excess deaths have gone up after the pandemic has finished. Yeah, a big problem with a lot of people's analysis of excess deaths, though, James, is they're looking at deaths now compared to an average uh, before the pandemic. And there's a thing I've discussed with you before, a huge wave of population who were born after the Second World War, who've hit this kind of population now where they're at age life expectancy. And a lot of people aren't adjusting for that. So I do treat some of the stuff that some people are publishing as absolute garbage and nonsense, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, I, I accept that point. But but the other thing that's not being factored into that is that after a pandemic, you would normally expect, particularly one with a um, a disease that affected old people, is you'd expect the, um, um, I forget what the exact term is, but, you know, the um, uh, most people who might have died in the next few years will have been taken by the virus. So what you'd actually expect is a lower um, rate of mortality um, in, in in the elderly. So I accept what you're saying there. We've got um, a whole cohort um, of boomers that have reached that point um, where we're seeing more deaths overall. But, you know, when you take that into account as well, it kind of um, balances it out, doesn't it? So there is a question there, don't you think? If you do look at how many people died, say, just take England and Wales as an example, uh, who were elderly during the pandemic, and then that cohort that are coming through, the cohort that are coming through far outweighs the number of people who died during the pandemic. People seem to think, because it was on the telly every single day how many deaths we were having, the number of deaths was relatively low when you compare to the overall population as well. So I think that's one of the big challenges when you're looking at it. You've got to look at the age standardization. And we, the big thing for me with the excess deaths that we've discussed, James, is not particularly these elderly people. A lot of the excess, when you take the overall population, mm, can be explained yeah. by that. The big challenge is these middle-aged age groups where as the health system let them down that's the big question yeah of course and of course here we're talking about you know people in their 20s 30s the excess deaths due to things like heart attacks and strokes that's the really worrying thing in the data 
Um, right, Jamie, we have run out of time. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you have a great weekend. Um, Jamie Jenkins, um, ladies and gentlemen. Right, to the rest of you, I'm going off now to sit on the sofa in front of the fire and have a relaxing weekend. I hope you have a great weekend too. And make sure you stay tuned for more great shows here on TNT Radio. Listener.